isn't it uh, the, uh, uh, such an un- unspeakable blessing that God has spoken to us and that we can hear his truth, hear his voice and his word. And so let's prepare our, our, um, our minds and hearts for this reading of God's word. This will be a little bit of a longer reading. Uh, we, we're going to pick off where we left off back in the end of chapter 6. Verse 12, just the last few verses of chapter 6, all the way to the end of chapter 8. Chapter 6, verse 12, did I say the book of Esther? (laughs) Did I mention that part? In the book of Esther, we're uh, continuing on this week, and next week will be our last week in the book of Esther. Esther chapter 6, verse 12, let's uh, prepare ourselves for the reading of God's word. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Since his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you can't stand against him. You will surely come to ruin." And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor... With you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Will he even molest a queen while she is with me here in, my, in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king, and the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. 
And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned, On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and in the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to all the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out and spurred on by the king's command and the, issue, the edict was issued in the citadel. Of Susa. This is the word of God. <clears throat> In uh, the book of Psalms, Psalm 73, uh, the, the psalmist, the author of that psalm, wrestles with the perplexing experience in life which can lead to doubts of faith and which can lead to even the temptation to abandon faith. And that perplexing experience of life is this, that sometimes those in this world who ignore and despise God seem to nevertheless come out as winners in this life. They seem to come out on top. They have it easy. They have it good. They live in comfort and ease. And that on the other hand, sometimes those who love God and live in faithfulness to him seem to come out on bottom, seem to come out as the losers of this life, feel the the weight of suffering and struggle and lack in this life. That is what the psalmist is experiencing, and seeing that 
he says that he's even tempted to envy the arrogant and the proud. And that reason that that experience can lead to uh, those doubts of faith and that abandonment of faith is that we become tempted to envy that and the psalmist confesses this and the whole experience tempts him towards grief and embitterment towards God. He, he's, he's in a, a hard place, a dark place, a place of real struggle over his faith. But then he gains some perspective. And there's two particular things that enable him to fight back against that doubt and continue in his faithfulness to God with hope and steadfastness. And that two things is first, he enters into the presence of God. And he remembers that God's presence is in his life. And that knowing and remembering God's presence in your life is sort of a a game changer of what it means to win or lose in life, right? He remembers, he says things like, whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. And that when everything else in life fails us as it will, he remembers that God is, is his strength and God it is possession when everything else fails such that we even have nothing else that this world offers us nevertheless we have God the God of the universe the God who loves us the God who made us the God who redeems us we have his presence and favor in us and upon us forever and that's a second sh- shift in perspective He broads out from a narrow, temporal, this worldly perspective to an eternal perspective. And he remembers and sees in eternity the great reversal that happens in salvation. The great reversal, this eternal and irreversible turning of the tables When the unbeliever, though perhaps winning in every way in life, nevertheless loses when facing the judgment of God in eternity. No matter what gains they might feel they have or appear to have, those don't last. And when the believer, though we may struggle and suffer and sacrifice and be persecuted and hated and rejected in this life. And though we may often feel that, uh, that we have followed God in vain. And though we may often be tempted to despair in the light of that. Nevertheless, We can cling to faith and we can find the strength to endure and persevere because we know the true outcome of things. That will be the eternal reality, our eternal, unchanging, irreversible destiny. And so we cannot lose heart, not lose hope, because we know that in eternity we We'll be caught up in that great turning of the tables, that great reversal when God will take us into glory to be with him, to suffer and lack no more forevermore. And no matter what 
things appear, how things appear in this life. No matter what we experience in this life, we know then, and what this psalmist learns is that there will be a day of justice when evil is ended. And don't we see that here in, here in, uh, in the book of Esther, right? And there will be a day of vindication for the people of God when trial and tragedy turn to triumph and victory and deliverance. And those eternal realities we see uh, pointed to, foreshadowed in this earthly experience of earthly deliverance that the people of God experience in the book of Esther. There will be a day when, of justice when evil is ended, and we see that in the fate of Haman, right? Haman, remember, Haman is the uh, representative enemy of God's people. Now, we, we talked about this. I don't want to re- rehash all of it, but he is the, uh, Haman the Agagite. Agag, the king of the Amalekites, the great enemies of God's people. And Haman is introduced that and referred to as the enemy of the Jewish people. And we see his enmity and bitter hatred against Mordecai and Mordecai's people that has uh, created the crisis that they are now in. This representative enemy of God's people who seems to be, and in fact is, he goes from, in, in, in the book of Esther, he goes from sitting on the top of the world to hanging impaled on a pole. Judgment has come for him. The tables are turned on him, and we see this great, uh, this great reversal in him, that he was wealthy, rich, powerful, the king's right-hand man, <laughs> He's a, the, the winner in life from a worldly perspective. Not only that, but he also is persecuting God's people and by his influence has worked this evil decree to destroy them, to annihilate them, to blot them out. Whose pride has already begun to lead, lead to a humiliating fall that we saw last time. And now his demise and death hasten quickly. Uh, In just a few moments, the tables are completely turned against this one who seemed to have all the power and the upper hand. And he meets justice. And Haman then takes the place uh, of what he had intended for Mordecai. He's impaled on the very stake that Haman built to impale Mordecai upon. Haman is impaled on it. Instead, Haman loses his status, and you know who gains it? We see in the beginning of chapter 8, Mordecai gains it. Who, uh, Haman loses his wealth, power, property, and all of that. It gets handed to, to Mordecai. And all this was this uh, turning of the tables, this reversal. This was all uh, uh, unknowingly uh, sort of prophesied uh, uh, by Uh, Haman's lovely wife who speaks more truly than she knows. Uh, If you remember, his lovely wife had encouraged Haman to respond to his pride-fueled hatred of Mordecai by building this pole to impale him on. Uh, And that, um, and and, uh, when he, his, uh, 
his uh, attempt to get that permission from the king to do that backfires on him. He comes back in total uh, humiliation and uh, his wife then uh, speaking more truly than she knows and sort of this, uh, you know, in, in this certainly true word that she probably doesn't understand the fullness of. She says that uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 13, that you cannot oppose God's people. You can't oppose God's purposes. Haman cannot succeed because he is opposing God's people and God's purposes. Haman's edict of destruction cannot succeed because it opposes God's purposes and promises. God had promised that from the seed of the woman would come the one who had crushed the head of the serpent. God had promised that from Abraham's descendants would come the source of blessing for all nations. God had promised from David's descendants who would become one who would sit upon the throne forever. And Haman's edict of destruction cannot succeed because it directly opposes those promises of God that God would fulfill. And God did fulfill. God's purposes cannot be thwarted even by the greatest human strength and evil. And now that the Messiah has come, God has made promises to us who believe in him, who have faith in him, that cannot be opposed or thwarted by even the greatest workings of evil in this world. Some of those pro- what are some of those promises? That his church will prevail. And the very gates of hell will not overcome it. That God will save and deliver and hold his people into eternity and glory. That Jesus, our mighty Savior, holds us in his gracious and loving and powerful hand and nothing can pry us out of it. And God the Father holds us in his all-powerful hands and nothing can pry us out of his grip And that if we are in Christ, God has promised and purposed to love us, to set his love upon us, and promised it so surely and certainly that nothing can oppose that resolve to love us. Nothing can get in the way of it. Nothing can separate us from it. Nothing, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, powers, height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a hopeful thing to remember? Isn't that a great and precious promise? And we need to remember that nothing can oppose that. So no matter what comes in this life, no matter what the, ex- uh, the appearance of the circumstances or the feeling we have within, we can know by faith that God loves us, his children, that God's holding on to us. God will never fail us or forsake us. God will work all things for the good of those who love him, conforming them into the image. Haman is whisked away to this uh, 
the, uh, from his home uh, uh, to this banquet that was previously the occasion of his boasting, uh, which he felt so honored about. But instead of being a banquet of honor, it's a banquet of exposure and uh, execution. Uh, because Esther finally makes her request. Remember, this suspense has sort of been building. Some suspense was relieved when the king is linked to Esther because Esther herself is Jewish. And now this is the final and fullest step of her identifying fully with her people in order to save them. We're going to come back to that at the end, but just keep that in your mind. This is the final and fullest step of her identifying with her people in order to save them. Because remember, she had been keeping her identity, her ethnic identity, secret. She had been blending in, living as a Persian in the king's house. And uh, she had begun, she, she had expressed her resolve back in chapter 4 uh, when she, to, to identify her people when she took up that cause of her people uh, upon herself, though it may cost her her life. And now she does, though it means revealing, see, it means identify, revealing herself as belonging to the people that are under the edict of destruction. It means she steps into that through that identifying with her people. And we see uh, this king's response then, that he's angry at this threat to the life of his queen. And we also see that it seems that in, in his question that he asks, it, it, it seems that he has, uh, is oblivious of Haman's edict of destruction against the Jewish people, of which he, remember, was culpable and complicit in, and with callous indifference gave the green light to. You know, Haman comes to the king asking for genocide, and the king's like, sure, and they go have a drink. Remember that? And finally, we see the king, his anger, <laughs> and we, we saw it back in chapter 1, he gets angry about things that are personal affronts to his honor, but re reacts indifferently to these great uh, acts of evil that are happening right under his, with his authority. And so we see the necessity then of Esther uh, revealing her identity and identifying with her people because if she only pleads with the king against the genocide of a whole people group, uh, it's unclear the king would care about that. But if she throws herself in with that and pleads with her life, then maybe... The king will care, and in fact, he, he responds with en being enraged. And Esther has, you know, carefully chosen uh, her words, it seems. She's thought through her approach. She's carefully avoided um, uh, overly direct or obvious finger-pointing at the king. Well, because he's the king, and uh, she probably doesn't want to offend him, and that that, in fact, may become counterproductive to her goals. Uh, and... Uh, so even in verse 4, she uses this phrase, we have been sold to be destroyed. 
This refers to the, the bribe that Haman paid Xerxes, and which suggests that the king actually did take that bribe. Remember, we talked about this, even though he, despite his verbal response to it, but she, she uses the passive voice there. We have been sold so that she can avoid putting the focus on or giving any revelation to the one who sold them, right? And so as the story progresses even, we see that the thing the king should be very upset about, he's still apathetic towards. And uh, even when uh, later, when he discovers Haman with Xerxes, we should interpret that as, that as some kind of chivalrous response uh, but rather uh, anger towards the affront to his own personal honor. And it's a rather reminder of what we've talked about earlier, that God's people long for and put their hope in a better king and a better kingdom than the kings and kingdoms of this world, right? The better king who rules in justice and righteousness and compassion has come. And now God's people long for his return when he will establish his eternal kingdom of justice and righteousness forever. That should be our longing for our good and perfect king to return and establish his perfect kingdom forever. And that should be uh, that thing which we are readying ourselves for and that should be the thing which we desire to see others enter into the hope of those who still live in, in darkness, to come into his marvelous light by his amazing grace. And also, you know, that is our hope. The true king, not the kings of this world. The true kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. Those are what we put our hope in. And so the king then, uh, as Esther makes her request, he spits out these uh, questions about who is responsible. Who is he? Where is he? The man who has done such a thing. And then uh, in response, Esther spits out this, this, uh, her response, uh, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And so she points the finger directly, squarely at Haman and certainly the king was complicit in it, uh, but as I said, she's being careful not to point the finger at the king because he's the king and she doesn't want to be counterproductive in having his favor on her side to solve the problem. But while his indifference allowed it, it's certainly Haman's evil that pursued it and drove it and his presence there is the threat to it continuing. And he then needs to be dealt with in order for the problem to be solved. And so the question is that then confronts the king, is what is the king going to do now that he's caught between his right-hand man and his own edict and the life of his own queen? And so Xerxes gets angry, he leaves. Uh, we reveal uh, uh, Haman knows the king is angry at him. We see in verse 7 that the king had already decided his fate, but apparently he's not sure how to proceed. And uh, so he leaves, and uh, probably maybe now he's remembering his uh, role in all of this. Maybe he's perplexed about how he can oppose Haman for something he himself gave the green light to do. 
But, ha- but whatever exactly the dilemma is, providence, God's providence resolves it. Once again, remember one of the main big ideas of the book of Esther is that God who seems absent is present and working and guiding events along to his conclusion according to his purposes and God's providence, God's perfect timing, God's working behind the scenes through ordinary and coincidental occurrences and even in uh, tragedy, God is working in all those things to bring about his good plan and purposes to deliver his people. And so we see again God's timing here uh, that he walks in just at the right moment. Haman is begging Esther for his life Haman is begging for a mercy unto himself that he never extended to anyone else. Haman is begging for his life, for mercy from Esther. But ultimately, it's not up to Esther. And Haman is found by the king falling on the couch in his begging and pleading, falling on the couch where the queen is sitting. Um, and not only this would have been a violation of, you know, protocol uh, that uh, other men besides the king could be with any of the king's women when he wasn't present. And even when he was present, they had to keep a distance of seven steps. But the king walks, just happens to walk in just as this is occurring. And he enters and he accuses Haman of uh, making some kind of sexual advance or assault upon Queen Esther. It's, it's hard to imagine that's what the king actually thinks is happening in a moment like that. But it is easy to imagine that the king finds in the appearance of things a convenient excuse and ticket out of the dilemma that he was in. Now he's got a good reason to get rid of Haman that doesn't implicate himself. And just then, an added bonus, an added reason, Harbona, uh, the eunuch attending the king, just happens at that time to mention, oh, hey, uh, Haman set up this pole of impalement for Mordecai. Remember, Mordecai was the guy who saved the king (laughs) from... um, from assassination attempt, right? And, um, and you see how this mere statement now casts suspicion on Haman's loyalty to the king. He now appears to be uh, aligned against those loyal to the king, Mordecai, and, he seemed, and in trying to get rid of Mordecai, he seems now to be aligned with those who sought to get rid of the king. And so um, now there's an added reason, treason, uh, added justification for the king to uh, sort of uh, be, be able to get rid of Haman without implicating himself in what all had happened. So the tables have turned on Haman, and, I, and he is impaled on the very stake set for Mordecai. But chapter 8 then deals with the problem that uh, Haman's edict of destruction against the Jewish people lives on, right? And that's the dilemma of chapter 8. How can the irreversible be reversed? 
And the answer is, it, it can't be. The uh, Persian edict is irrevocable. We're reminded of in verse 8. Um, the Persian edict is irrevocable. And so the dilemma now for Esther and Mordecai is how can you reverse the irreversible? And they can't. They can't revoke the decree of death. But they can counter it and overcome it with a new decree, the decree of life and deliverance. Let's broaden things out for us here and see how this chapter of Esther, chapter 8, points us to the gospel of Jesus. When sinners entered the world and the decree of death upon all entered through sin, how can you reverse that? How can you roll that back? God didn't just roll it back. And in fact, his holiness and justice couldn't. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, on the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. God's righteous decree of death, warranted by sinners who spurned his glory and rebelled against his goodness and love. And die, they certainly did, right? They immediately experienced spiritual death, guilt and shame and exile from the presence of God. Spiritual death immediately entered into their souls, a death that they couldn't work themselves out of. Physical death immediately began to work in their bodies, irreversibly so, such that without, uh, so that they would one day die physically. And one day, without some intervention by the grace and power of God that gives life to dry dead bones and newness to cold stone hearts, apart from some gracious, powerful intervention of God, they would that physical and spiritual death would come, it would bring them into eternal death, eternal separation from God, experiencing his wrath and curse. And God didn't just rewind that. His holiness and justice couldn't allow it, but he gave a new, he countered it. He conquered it with a new decree of life and deliverance in Jesus, the Savior. Haman's uh, uh, and uh, God in his mercy promised this uh, new decree all the way back in Genesis after that uh, decree of death, what came upon the human race. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, before your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And in that, we see the ultimate turning of the tables and the, the ultimate reversal uh, uh, that the book of Esther foreshadows. 
that just as it seems the serpent had gained the upper hand in victory, that seeming defeat would give way to the victory of God for his people. For in the day you eat of it, you will certainly die, the decree of death. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, the decree of life and deliverance and victory. And if you are in Christ, that is your destiny. Life, abundant and eternal with God forever. And in that, we find the deepest hope and joy. No matter how uh, things appear in the circumstances of life, what life throws at us, we are not. We, we can fight against and find a strength against that uh, temptation to envy or, uh, or uh, faithlessness unto God. And in Jesus and in his promises and in the new life he's given us, find strength to persevere and endure until that day when trial and tragedy give way to triumph forevermore. And so Mordecai and Esther write this counter-decree which parallels Haman's decree in its language. You hear the resonances with it, but of course changes the outcome and turns the tables that those who were formerly powerless now are given power. Uh, those who were doomed to destruction, now they're not given free reign to go annihilate everybody, but they're given the, the, the authorization and right to take up their, their defense against aggressors. It turns the table from those who are doomed to die and powerless to those, uh, it takes those and, and makes them those who now have power and hope of deliverance in life. And in fact, there are many uh, contrasts that accentuate this turning of the tables where when we look at the result in chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, and how many elements of the story have been flipped upside down. That those who are powerless now have power. That those who were facing defeat now uh, anticipate victory. That those who were grieving are now rejoicing, that those who are fasting are now feasting, that those who are wailing in grief now are celebrating in gladness. Mordecai, who was wearing the clothes of mourning, now is wearing royal robes. Those who were uh, unenviable in every way, such that uh, Esther hid her Jewishness to blend in as a Persian, now uh, they are, the Jewish people are envied and Persians and others are seeking to be included in with them. Can you see this turning of the tables? Can you see uh, the, the, the promise of Psalm 73 coming to fruition? The promise of Psalm 126 that those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. The promise of Psalm 113 that uh, God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to seat them with princes. Whatever the circumstances or outcomes of this life, we know that great turning of the tables of eternity. 
where God will take every last trial and tragedy and turn it into triumph for his people, when God will take every last tear of pain and sadness and turn it into shouts of joy and gladness, where God will take death and destruction, condemnation and wrath and no longer let them hold power over us. That's true of us now in Christ. We have been spiritually made alive We have been forgiven. We have been delivered from that condemnation. And we stand in the life of Christ before God, accepted and loved by him. And we will be given new physical life when we enter into new eternal life in the presence of God. All that effect of sin leading to death will be overcome because of Jesus' victory. Jesus, the mighty, eternal God, coming down to earth as a baby, living in humble service, dying on the cross, but being raised from death to eternal life, to bring with him all who were dead in their sins to live in that life. The gospel is all about the ultimate turning of the tables When God, the almighty and exalted God, humbled himself, emptied himself, condescended to such a lowly state to identify himself fully with us in a way that Esther's identification with her people pales in comparison. She identified with her people who stood under a sentence of physical death and by doing so secures their physical deliverance. But Jesus is a greater savior who brings a greater salvation. And, she, and uh, he, Jesus identifies with his people to accomplish a certain and sure eternal salvation. He became like us in every way except without sin and so fully identified with us that he stood in the place where sinners should have stood under the wrath of God in our place. That's how fully he identified with us, taking on the wrath of God that we deserved, tasting death for us becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And you hear the echoes of Philippians chapter 2. We studied this last year, right? The one who is despised and rejected now has been lifted to the highest place and given the name above all names before whom every knee will bow. The one who appeared to be defeated in death burst forth in life and victory in his resurrection a new edict of life to defeat the edict of death, not just to roll things back to the garden, but to usher in a new promise of a new heaven and new earth where eternal life and dwelling in the presence of God for all eternity is our destiny. And the assurance to our faith that God will turn triumph, turn tragedy and trial into triumph so we can live with the hope of that in this life. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for your grace to us who are undeserving that you...
countered the, the death that entered into us because of our sin, which that death which we rightly deserved, you countered it with the promise of the gospel, eternal life, which we could never deserve or earn. But by your grace and by your power, you have given to us and let us live in the freedom and the joy and the hope of that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.